Well, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and seven years ago, I moved out to Chicago. And so for the past seven years, I've been flying back and forth from Chicago to Seattle, and I've grown fairly comfortable with the flight. In fact, so comfortable that oftentimes I'll close my eyes before we take off to fall asleep and not wake up again until we've touched down in Seattle. You see, I'm fairly confident that the flight will reach its fulfillment. The flight will execute its plan of taking off in Chicago and landing in Seattle. My wife, however, is not as confident in that plan. She's what some people might call a nervous flyer. And when we get onto the plane, she looks to me with a little bit of a look of panic. And so I start to share with her, Brittany, this is a Boeing 747. This is the greatest piece of engineering our country has ever come up with. The best and the brightest men and women have been working on this plane. It's not going to crash. It's not going to fail. No expense has been left out. In fact, there are far more deaths related to automobile accidents than are to flight accidents. And so she seems to calm down a little bit. And we sit and we listen to the flight attendant share the safety instructions. And the flight attendant goes through and tells us how to fasten our seatbelts, how to find the exits and the restrooms if we need them. And then just before they're done, the flight attendant lets us know, and by the way, in case of an emergency, your seat cushion can be used as a flotation device. And I feel Brittany's fingers digging into my arm as the flight attendant has just struck doubt into her belief that this plane will truly reach its fulfillment. You see, the flight attendant has offered a contingency plan. And a contingency plan casts a shadow of doubt that plan A will really work out. What they're saying is that we're fairly confident that this flight will reach its fulfillment, but there's a small, small, small chance that it won't. And if it doesn't, here's what you'll do just in case. But the reality is, is that can, that contingency plan does not offer much hope. If this plane fails and we fall 30,000 feet out of the sky, I better hope that I have something other than a seat cushion to secure my life. I doubt that that seat cushion is going to offer much saving grace. And I understand why planes have contingency plans. I understand that there are insurance policies and manufacturer pr protocols that they need to follow. I'm comfortable with that. But what I'm uncomfortable with is the fact that I have contingency plans in my own faith. And that's something that I've been learning this week and something that I think maybe some of you might relate with me. Before we go any further, we're going to open up into our scriptures into Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is a, a parable that Jesus is telling to his disciples. He's walking along and he sits down for a little bit to share with his disciples and a crowd of people joins with him. In that crowd are a group of men called Pharisees. And many of you know Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. These were the best and the brightest that the Israelites had to offer. They had received the best degrees from the best rabbis, from the best schools. They understood and knew the law better than anyone else. They were influential, they were powerful, and they were wealthy. 
They were looked to as leaders in their community. But oftentimes they lived a life that was fairly hypocritical. They lived a life that was anything but what they were teaching. And so Jesus has them in mind as he shares this parable with them. And so Jesus opens the parable. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Anytime that we look into scripture, we need to put ourselves in the cultural and historical context of the believers that were hearing these words. And as we sit there, we realize that the cultural nuances offer a lot of light to this parable. And we start off hearing about a relationship that would be very, very common in that day. The relationship between a rich man or a master and his manager. You see, it was fairly common for masters and rich men to offer out loans of land and money to farmers and herdsmen, shopkeepers and shepherds so that they could conduct their business. And oftentimes the master did not have time to keep track of each and every one of these loans, so they would hire a manager to account for all the loans and make sure that payments were being made on time and appropriately. And so this, this relationship is very, very frequent, very common for the believers here today. And when they hear this relationship, they understand it immediately. This manager, however, has not been doing a very good job. And so the master says to him, look, get your books in order. Bring before me all the accounts that I have out so that I might bring someone new in to take over for you. In essence, you're fired. And here's what the manager does. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So the manager recognizes that he's going to get fired and he realizes that in order to ensure success for himself, he's going to need to take action. He's going to need to use his temporary authority, his temporary influence and power in order to assure for himself that he will continue living a life of success and fulfillment from the world's standards. And so he goes behind the master's back and he chops the loans in two. He goes to his master's debtors and tells them, we are forgiving this amount of your loan so that he might gain friends with them that will provide for him in the future. And when I was sitting here reading this, I was thinking about how furious the master must have been. This master was surely going to take this deceitful manager and make him account for the mispractice that he had done against him. He was going to bring him in front of the courts. He might have a group of people come together and stone him. The master must have been furious. 
But then we are surprised by the master's response. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The master commended the dishonest manager. And when I first read this, I didn't know what to make of it. And so it took me almost a day of looking into the historical nuances to really bring some light to this. And it turns out that during this time, there was a Hebrew law that said it was illegal to offer a loan and expect interest in return. You could not offer a loan of money or of land and expect any interest in return. You could simply loan out the money and expect that money back. However, it was a fairly common practice to skirt around this law by asking for the loan to be paid back in a basic commodity, such as oil or wheat. And so the people around Jesus, when they hear that these loans and these debts are debts of olive oil and wheat, they immediately recognize that this master is very likely charging a large sum of interest to his debtors. He is practicing foul business standards. And so the manager takes advantage of this because the manager recognizes, if I just simply chop off the interest from these loans, what can my master do to me? And the master is stuck because if he does condemn this man, at the same time, he admits that he has been practicing deceitful business. And so all he can say It's good work. You got me. Because the manager had used everything at his disposal, including his understanding of Hebrew law, to assure for himself that he would be set up for fulfillment in the future. So what does Jesus have to say to this? For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus, too, commends this shrewd manager. But he doesn't commend this shrewd manager because he has done great business practice. He doesn't commend this shrewd manager because he is a faithful servant of God. No, he commends this shrewd manager because he has played the world's game well. He has recognized that as a man of the world, fulfillment is found in success, influence, power, and authority. And he has used everything available to him to assure that he will continue to be successful later in life. You see, even today, our world measures fulfillment and success by the things that we have acquired by the jobs that we have, by the titles that we have, by the influence we have. In fact, we grow up studying hard so that we can get into the best universities in order to get the best degrees, so that when we get a job, we can work hard and quickly gain promotions and reach a point where we have this success, which is oftentimes measured by our bank accounts. And so Jesus commends him because he says he was shrewd in using everything available to him in order to pursue fulfillment here on earth. But children of the light or people of the light, Christians, are not so shrewd. Christians don't do a good job with this. 
And it's not that we don't do a good job pursuing earthly fulfillment, but it's that we don't do a good job understanding that our fulfillment is not found here on earth. Because when we accept Christ into our lives, we have accepted a new fulfillment, a fulfillment that is found in heaven, a fulfillment that is found in eternity. And if we believe that fulfillment is found at an eternal basis, then we will use all influence, all power, all finances, all authority in order to pursue that eternal fulfillment. Yet many of us, including myself, have instead developed a contingency plan. We understand that fulfillment is found in heaven, but at the same time, there's a small doubt in the back of our minds that this plan won't work out, that God won't provide for me, that I won't end up in heaven. And so just in case, I want to make sure that I have fulfillment here on earth as well. And so we lead two parallel lives, one that pursues earthly success and one that pursues worldly success. And the reality, Jesus is saying, is that that is not shrewd. Because you are either being an unwise man of this world by not pursuing fully earthly success, or you're being an unwise child of the light by not pursuing eternal success. So what does this look like? In reality, what does a life like this look like? We're now going to open up into 1 Timothy um, chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find um, a passage written by the Apostle Paul. Now, if you guys remember, the Apostle Paul was a Sadducee. And a Sadducee is like a Pharisee, but with even higher status. So the author of this passage is a man that has had great wealth, great status, great education, understands the law to its fullest extent. And on top of all of this, he is a Roman citizen, which offers him privileges that Israelites just don't have. Paul, from an Israelite worldly standpoint, has it all. And he is using that to persecute Christians in order to continue his earthly purpose. Until one day, Jesus confronts him, or God confronts him, on the road to Damascus. And he has what many of us call a born-again experience, where he confronts God and realizes that his life has been aimed the wrong direction. He recognizes that his life has been aimed towards fulfillment here on earth. And reorients how he sees his purpose to be one that is eternal. And Paul then takes everything that he has in order to pursue God. And so now in this passage, we hear him reflecting on who he is and what he has been given. Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul says is that on that road to Damascus, God reoriented how I saw success. He reoriented how I saw fulfillment. And when I realized that fulfillment was an eternal goal, I realized then that the things that I have are not my own. And he even says that he is the worst of these, the lowest of these. Even though it is quite obvious that Paul has quite a few things by the world's standards. But when he reoriented how he saw eternity, he also reoriented how he saw his part in eternity. And because of that, he recognized that as a shrewd child of the light, he would pursue eternity with everything that God had given him here on earth. Whether that was influence, whether that was knowledge, whether that was authority, or whether that was money. And he dedicated everything he had to pursue God in such a way that we are still reading his letters to this day in churches around the world. He got it. And he reshifted how he saw his world and his God. So now the question is, what does that mean for us? What do we need to do and how can we pursue this same eternity. Because, quite frankly, this is a pretty radical shift and one that is not going to be easy to go out and change this Sunday. I know that for myself, I find myself so reliant on my gifts, my abilities, my education, my family, my status, my position, and very unreliant on what God has given me. So how do I shift? How do we shift? When I was a little boy, my dad would always call the whole family together to do our tithes and offerings in January. And we would do all of our tithes for the entire year. He would sit us down around the dining room table, and he would hand each of us kids $500. And he would say, this money is for you to reinvest into ministries that you believe are doing good things for Jesus. And as a 10-year-old boy... My first thought was probably, wow, I could buy a lot of baseball cards or a lot of toys with this $500. But the reality was, is that my father had painted a new picture of what this was intended for. A new picture of why I had been given $500 in the first place. And that was for me to invest in things that I believe were impactful for Jesus. And so my siblings and I would often reinvest this money into camp scholarships at our church because those had been an impactful experiences for us. Sometimes we would give to local missionaries that we had served alongside or maybe missionaries that had come from afar to speak to our Sunday room classes. You see, my dad allowed me to reorient how I saw that money in a way that pointed me away from my own desires and my own success towards eternal ones. 
we need to begin by looking at our hearts and deciding, are we oriented towards success here on earth where we believe that each thing we have is for our purposes and our fulfillment? Or do we believe that we are oriented towards God and his eternity? And so therefore, each thing that is given to us is only useful as it furthers the purposes of eternity. Because unless we reorient there, we will never be able to believe that what we have is not for ourselves. Unless we are completely focused without contingency upon Christ Jesus and his kingdom, then how will we use our things to give to him fully? Until we realize that we were created with an eternal purpose, we cannot live a life as a shrewd Christian. So first, we need to reorient how we see God. Second, we need to reorient how we see ourselves. And third, is offered to us back in that parable in Luke 16. Jesus continues in verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus recognizes that this is a monumental shift. And so he starts us out small. And he says, be trustworthy with a little. Be trustworthy with your wealth. And if you are trustworthy with a little, then I will begin to create in you a heart that is more oriented towards my purposes. So what is a little? There is a boy named Zach Hunter, and Zach Hunter made some waves about eight years ago when he was in seventh grade because he was in class learning about child slavery in Africa, and he decided that that wasn't right and he needed to do something about it. So as a seventh grader, he thought to himself, what could my friends give without impacting their lives? What would be the little that I could use from my friends in order to make a huge impact on this world? And he decided that each day his friends went to the cafeteria and they had their $5 and they paid it and received their change of dimes, nickels, and quarters. And oftentimes they would throw that in a pocket. It would fall on the ground. It would spill out in their classes. And so he decided, what if each of my friends gave their change after lunch to kids in Africa that are struggling through child slavery. And so he started an initiative that absolutely took off. It was called Loose Change to Loosen Chains. Loose Change to Loosen Change. And he started a worldwide initiative that middle schoolers around our country and around our world began partaking in to make an impact on Christ's kingdom in Africa. You see, he recognized that a little is simply excess. So we, together with our families, need to decide what is our excess. And how can we use our excess in order to pursue fulfillment and eternity? 
How can we use the things that if they were gone would not hurt us in order to pursue fulfillment in eternity so that in turn our hearts could begin to be trusted with more? Some of us have excessive time. Maybe our kids have all grown up and gone to college and we find that we have extra days on our hands or lazy weekends. And instead of using those weekends to pursue your hobbies and your desires, you might leverage those to pursue eternity. You might use that time to feed back into your church and to serve with the children or to serve with the ushers. Maybe you have a chance to get involved in community outreaches like soup kitchens or homeless shelters. I don't know what it is for you, but for those that have excess of time, consider that your little and use that shrewdly for the kingdom of heaven. Some of us have an excess of influence. We've done very well for ourselves. We've gained high positions in our work communities, in our schools, with our friends, in our neighborhoods. And we can use that influence to point our coworkers, our friends, and our neighbors towards Christ. Because for some reason, they will listen to us more than they would listen to somebody else. And so instead of using that influence to further ourselves, we can use that influence to lead others to Christ, to point others towards righteous living. Many of us have an excess of influence. How can we use our little for Christ and his eternal purposes? Some of us have an excess of possessions. We have a full closet of clothes we haven't worn, a bucket of toys we haven't played with, a car that we drive on the weekends. Or a summer home that we used to go to all the time, but now we maybe get up there once every couple of years. How can we leverage our excess in a way that shrewdly drives for eternity? We know that there are people in our own communities that don't have cars to get to work. We know that there are people in our own communities that don't have a place to relax with their families during the summer. We know that there are people in our community that don't have clothes, that don't have toys. How can we leverage the excess that we have been given in order to pursue eternity rather than to stockpile our earthly treasures? Finally, some of us have an excess of wealth. And we've been giving faithfully our 10%, but the reality is, is we could give 30 to 40% before it began to impact our lives. The reality is, is that just a percent of our income could create a school or a well or a hospital or an orphanage around the world. How can we leverage that excess in order to pursue eternity? So our first question is to reorient how we see this world and how we see God. And second, we need to decide what our excess is and live trustworthy with that excess. Jesus sums up Luke 16 or the parable here in verse 13. 
He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, God does not cast a punishment before us. He doesn't threaten us. Instead, he just interprets reality. In the same way that my wife recognizes if they're telling us our seat cushion can be used as a flotation device, that means that this plan has not always worked out. In the same way, if we believe that our money, our possessions, our time can provide us with fulfillment and success, then we don't believe fully that this eternal purpose is worthwhile and that we will truly be satisfied in heaven. And God is saying, look, if you have that contingency plan, then how can you be loving me fully? If you have that contingency plan and you can't even give me your excess, how can I ask for your heart? So as we leave today, let us examine our lives. Let us examine our excess, our influence, our authority, our power and our time and decide, are we using those things to pursue eternity or are we using those things to pursue our earthly fulfillment? Bow with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God and you have offered us the greatest riches. Lord, an eternity spent with you. You have given us riches here on earth in order to pursue you more fully and bring others around us. Lord, we pray that we would be trustworthy in how we use your things. And Lord, that we might invest it in your eternal kingdom. We pray that you would work in our hearts and challenge us to live rightly before you. In your name. Amen.